Welcome to the June 28th sermon from Clifford Baptist Church, 635 Fletcher's Level Road in Amherst. Today's scripture is John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and the sermon is entitled, Jesus' First Miracle, delivered today by Pastor Michael Fitzgerald. I want you to take your Bible. Turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 2. We are moving along in a sermon series through the gospel. Today we are opening chapter 2. We have just closed out chapter 1. It took us quite a few sermons to get here. But this chapter is one of those chapters that's kind of key when you have a discussion with someone. This is maybe one of those topics that comes up in Jesus' first miracle that he brought forth in his earthly ministry. This is an occurrence in the life of Jesus that is one of the most well-known events of all of his ministry. Chapter 2 opens with Jesus' first earthly miracle. He is at a marriage feast, and he turns water into wine. Uh, It was an amazing gift to an unnamed couple. They had just gotten married. This feast goes on for several days, and so wine is getting short at the wedding feast, and we see a miracle take place. Now, before I continue on in that, and as we examine this passage, we want to glean God's truth from it. But let, before we begin opening the Word, I want to give you a disclaimer about Jesus' first miracle. You know, this passage of Scripture has often, often, often been used as a proof text for outlandish drinking. Uh, Jesus' first miracle, of course, creating wine from water, therefore it must be okay for me to drink any way that I would choose to do so. After all, Jesus brought forth that miracle. Well, I want to address that before we actually open this Word of God. Wine is a normal, accepted drink of Jesus' day. It has been studied about its potency, how strong it was, the alcoholic content within it. Uh, There has, in that study, at full length, uh, the question is, could the wine of Jesus' day make a person drunk? Now, while there's some who would disagree with me, I do believe that potency was weaker But yes, you drink enough of it, it absolutely could make you tipsy. It could make you drunk. One study I read said that the Jews added wine to their water to actually make it safer to drink. Three parts water, one part wine, so that the water that they used on a daily basis was safer to drink. The antiseptic quality within wine made the water safe. That being the case, we know that Jews, indeed, in Jesus' day and before, used wine on a regular basis and consumed it regularly. But I also want you to be reminded that the Bible has some strict commandments about prohibiting drunkenness, drinking too much wine and becoming drunk. Proverbs 23 describes alcohol as a poisonous snake. Drinking will bring the sting of trouble and the sting of sorrow to a person and to a person's family. How true that is. Drinking has ruined many a person. Drinking has split apart many a family. How sad that is. The Bible absolutely has the standard that we are not to drink to the point of drunkenness. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 21, it says that drinking to the point of getting drunk is actually consuming the cup of devils. So I want you to understand that, yes, alcohol was a part of Jesus' day. Yes, 
the people of his day did consume alcohol on a regular basis. Jesus turning water to wine is not a scripture of permission for us to be able to be free to drink as much alcohol as we would desire. In fact, you will totally miss what the Bible's saying here if that's the point you're looking for. And you're not going to hear that from this sermon today. And let me say this to you. Does the Bible make a hard and fast case against all drinking? And my answer to that is no. In fact, the Bible gives us point after point that drinking in moderation was part of the day in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. Does that give us permission? Well, let me ask you this. Here's the primary question that you need to ask yourself. What does it mean to take a drink? You know, I had a doctor once upon a time some years ago who told me in order to deal with a little bit of a cholesterol problem, take a daily drink of wine and that will help you. I believe that in strict, strict moderation, drinking will not hurt you. But here's the question I ask you. Will it hurt your witness? There's the key that you need and I need to consider about drinking. When we drink, if you have your children sitting around your table and you have that customary drink of wine, what is that teaching your children as they watch you day after day with that customary drink? How about if you're sitting in a restaurant and you have that mixed drink sitting on the table? Will it hurt you? Physically, probably not. But will it hurt your witness? Most likely, yes, it will. So my choice and my decision is I'm going to leave it alone because I want my witness for Jesus Christ to stand. I don't want to be a stumbling block to anyone, and that particular thing can make someone stumble in seeing Christ. Do I hear an amen? So think about your witness. That's what it's all about when it comes to alcohol and where it stands in your particular life and in your setting. That being said, the preacher, the commentator, Warren Wiersbe, said a man came to him once upon a time, and he said, I can drink alcohol as much as I want because Jesus changed water into wine. And Dr. Wiersbe said, if you're going to follow Jesus as an example there, then you need to follow Jesus as an example in every other aspect of your life. Don't choose one place where you're going to follow him and then ignore him in the rest of your life. That was a great comeback. Wish I'd thought of that one. I'll use it from now on. If you're going to follow Jesus in one thing, follow him in all things. Don't use a proof text to prove what you're going to do. With that said, let's read John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Listen to these words of Jesus' first miracle of his earthly ministry. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples... To the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. 
When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water which was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. May God add his blessing to the reading of this precious portion of his word. The passage begins by saying, and the third day there was a marriage. A third day from what? Well, the timing, remember, is Jesus' timing of his life. The timing in sermons past has been tied with the timing of John the Baptist's ministry. So in the passage before this one, in the last part of chapter 1, Jesus called Philip and Nathanael to be his disciples. So the marriage was three days after the calling of those two men to follow him as disciples. And if you remember from last week's sermon, I love it, the fact that Philip followed him just like that. Instantly he's following. Nathanael had questions he had to work out. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Remember, he had to work toward it. And yet Nathanael also came to Jesus as a disciple. A wedding, of course, was a very common event in Jesus' day. You know, I thought about that as I was writing this sermon and thinking about this sermon. Wedding or, uh, weddings are not as common today as they used to be. In my 38 years here, weddings are not as common as they used to be. Why is that? Because living together has taken such a great hold in our society. What a shame that is. We need to pray for weddings to be much more common in our days. Weddings were common in Jesus' day. And Jewish wedding feasts lasted for one week. I had to chuckle at that. I would rather get on with the honeymoon, but they lasted for a week in Jesus' day. A wedding, Scripture says, took place where Jesus and his mother and his disciples were invited there. Now, according to John's gospel, Jesus attended many social events. He was not a wallflower. He certainly attended this wedding. He went to temple worship. He went to family gatherings. He ate at the table with different kinds of people. He was not an introvert at all. Jesus took up those invitations. Jesus took the time to share time with people in times of joy, as well as in times of challenge, as well as in times of sorrow. Jesus was not introverted. He was not a monk in a monastery. He shared life with the people who were around him. I think that's interesting, and we need to take note of that. Uh, Jesus, uh, being there, was just beginning his three years of public ministry, so he's not well-known yet. You know, as time went on, multitudes began to follow him. They would hang on every word, but at this particular moment in his ministry, it is just really getting underway. He is just now calling his disciples, and so he's not well-known in the community uh, as, uh, uh, as a preacher of the, of the good news of God, nor has he been known as a miracle worker. This is the first of many. So people are not thronging about him at this point. He's somewhat anonymous as far as being a part of this wedding service. But now in a week-long wedding feast, the groom has a big job. This is the groom's job 
in the wedding feast that lasts for a week. He is to make sure there is ample provision of food and wine to carry the wedding party and the celebrants throughout that entire week. The groom was charged with taking care of the crowd, making sure that provision was made for everyone who was attending that week. It would be embarrassing to run out of food. It would be more embarrassing, really, to run out of wine. To run out of wine in a Jewish wedding was worse than running out of casseroles at a Baptist dinner. You just didn't do it. You could not do that. Wine had to be a part of that uh, in the celebration of the wedding. So Scripture is indicating here that now we're several days into this week-long wedding feast. And the wine begins to run short. In fact, in the context of the word, what Jesus' mother says is, it's gone, it has run out, they don't have any. And she comes to Jesus, and she simply reports the fact. She's noticing that the wedding party, and particularly perhaps the groom and the, the governor, or the leader of the wedding, they were getting tense, they were getting antsy because the wine had all but completely run out. And so Jesus' mother comes to him, and she simply reports the facts. Jesus, the wine is just about gone. Did she expect him to do something? You know, as you read that passage, you kind of get in your mind, what exactly did Mary say to Jesus when she said, you you can see, son, that the wine is getting very, very low, almost run out. Jesus' reply to her is very interesting. Look at John 2, verse 4. He said, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. By the way, calling his mother woman was not a derogatory thing. It was actually a term of respect. But he says, why are you telling me this? Why do you want me to know this particular fact right now? My hour is not yet come. That's a very important statement in and of itself. When Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, John the gospel writer is beginning to show us that all of Jesus' life is lived on a timetable. Every step, every miracle, every word, every outreach, every person he meets is on a timetable that is leading him to the cross. Every day is accounted for. Jesus is not living life just wandering here and there, going from town to town, wherever he would choose, but rather John helps us understand at this very point that Jesus is intentionally living every day. My hour has not come yet. So every day is on God's timing, which is divine. It's on a a sacred clock that God has set as Jesus is traveling by the day toward the cross. I'm sure most of you had a proud mama. I had a proud mama, and I miss her a lot. But Mary turns to the servants, and when they're taking care of the wedding party and attending to the crowd there, she simply says, whatever Jesus tells you to do, you do that for him. You take care of him if he tells you to do something. This is my boy. (laughs) He's very talented. She knew who her son was. She knew the power. She knew the authority. She knew who his father was. She knew this is the son of God. (laughs) So I I, I love the mama's pride here. If Jesus tells you to do something, you take care of that. You do that for him right at the moment he asks. Well, the wine containers there were stone pots. 
20 to 30 gallons per pot. And Jesus told the servants, fill those pots for me. And of course, you know, they immediately jumped to the task and they filled the pots with water to the brim. They readily cooperated with him. Now, I want you to bear that in mind. Don't forget that. That's going to tie in in this sermon. The servants cooperated with Jesus and that they filled the pots with the water that he would make into wine. Jesus told them after they got them full, there didn't seem to be any time much elapsed. Once they filled the pots, he says, now, now that the pots are full, I want you to take a sample of the water and I want you to take it to the governor of the feast, the one who's in charge of making sure that all goes well, the, the wedding director, so to speak. And so they obey what Jesus asked. They cooperate with him. They take that sample to the wedding coordinator. Now, here's another practice at a week-long wedding service. You always start the feast with the very best wine that you have. And as the week wears on, you, you plow in the lesser and lesser qualities of wine uh, as the week drags along. Uh, you bring out that which is not choice after the crowd has been there for some time. The best is always served first. But the governor of the wedding tastes the contents of the water pots The servants bring this sample to him, and he calls the bridegroom. And he he tells the bridegroom, who, of course, is the one truly who is in charge. The governor is simply carrying out what the bridegroom is supposed to be doing. And he says, wow, this is the best wine of the entire stash of the week. Here we are late in the week, and we get the best now. We've kind of gotten out of order. The best, which I'm drinking here, should have been served at the first of the week. But we have it now. This is far better than anything we had in stock. Who snuck this wine in here? Look at verse 11, last verse that we read today. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. This verse says that this was his first miracle But I want you to notice that this miracle accomplishes two purposes. First of all, it shows forth Jesus' glory, Jesus' power, Jesus' authority. And it also, secondly, builds up the faith of these brand-new disciples that he's chosen. So it says that the disciples now believe on him. They see this transformation. They understand the miracle that has taken place. Now, as I've prayed over this first miracle of the Lord, I want to give you four things that this miracle teaches me personally. There, I'm sure, are many, many more teaching points within this miracle of Jesus, but let me give you four ways that this miracle has touched me in this week that I've studied it and prayed over it and thought about the miracle itself. First, it was a miracle of grace and goodness for people. Through this miracle, Jesus gave relief to those who were worried that they were going to run out. When the wedding party began to get tense because the wine was running out, because that which was bringing joy to, to them was running out, it was a necessity to have wine for the joy of the wedding. In fact, in the Bible, wine is known as a bringer of joy. Just write this reference down, Psalm 104 Verses 14 and 15, listen to what it says. 
God, he, causeth the grass to grow for the cattle and herb for the service of man, that he might bring forth food out of the earth and wine that maketh glad the heart of man and oil to make the face to shine and bread which strengtheneth man's heart. But you'll notice that it says in Psalm 104 that wine is the bringer of joy to a man. So this miracle restores the joy of the wedding. What I want you to hear is what, how it touches me is that God loves to restore our joy. God loves to bring us back into a time of joy in our life. All of us go through trials. All of us go through hardships and struggles and losses. But God loves to restore our joy, bring us back into the path of enjoyment of life. No matter where you've been, what you've done, God can bring joy back to you and to me. I believe that's the first message that God gave to me in this miracle of Jesus. Secondly, the second thing that this miracle teaches me is that this was a very quiet act of Jesus. According to Scripture, no one really knew where this great wine came from except the disciples, I'm sure Jesus' mother. But there's another note that I want you to to see in your Bible. In the King James Version, it's in parentheses, and it's in verse 9. Look at John chapter 2, verse 9. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, and here's the parentheses, but the servants which drew the water knew. The servants that put the water in those pots, the servants who took that sample to the governor, they understood that indeed it was a miracle of God that they saw before them water that they had loaded into those pots had become wine under the miracle and the hand of Jesus the Christ. And I do believe, friends, that this being a quiet miracle, it reminds me that our lives are full every day of quiet miracles. Every day, miracles happen in your life and my life, and they slip by, and we never count them, and we never think about them, but he is the giver of those quiet miracles through every day. The air that we breathe is a gift of God. I rarely think about it. Every beat of the heart is a gift of God, a miracle of God, and I rarely think about it. The sun came up this morning. A miracle of God. I never give it a second thought that the sun is going to come up tomorrow morning. But it's a miracle that he gives us another day of life. Family, friends, church, people who love us, the life that we live, a new day every day. Everything around us is a miracle that's given by God over and over. They're so quiet that we rarely think about them. My prayer is that this scripture stirs me a little more to think about the quiet miracles that happen in my life every single day. I pray that's true for you as well. As we, as we look at this scripture and as we think about paying a little more attention to the quiet miracles, let me move on to the third point that this teaches me. And This point is very, very important to me. I pray that you will get something perhaps that you've never heard in a sermon on this passage before. The third thought from God that I have about this wedding miracle is so important. Listen carefully. Jesus brought forth this miracle with the cooperation of the servants at that wedding. Told you I was going to come back to that point. Jesus brought forth this miracle 
with the cooperation of some common everyday guys who were slaves to a household or servants within a household. I want you to think about that. At Jesus' command, the servants filled the water pots. At Jesus' command, the servants took the sample to the governor of the wedding. And it tells us in verse 9, the servants knew, they understood that this indeed, the, the water to wine, was an act of God Almighty. The disciples realized it. I'm sure Mary realized it, but so did the servants who cooperated with Jesus to bring forth the miracle. So plain, everyday people worked with Jesus to bring forth this miracle. You know, I've read that passage hundreds of times. That never occurred to me that in cooperation with the servants, a miracle came forth. And then a light comes on for me. When Jesus fed the 5,000, he brought forth a miracle but some common everyday guys passed the food out. Jesus didn't pass the food out. Other guys passed it out and took up the leftovers. Common everyday people worked with Jesus to bring forth a miracle. They worked in cooperation with the Savior to see a miracle come forth, feeding the 5,000. When Jesus anointed the blind man with the dirt and the spittle in John chapter 9, you remember Jesus, after he anointed his eyes, said, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam. This man had to cooperate with the miracle of Jesus to continue forth to wash in the pool of Siloam that the miracle could be completed. Jesus brought forth the miracle, but it took the cooperation of the man to say, I will do what you tell me to do so that the miracle can be complete. When Jesus brought forth the greatest miracle of his earthly career, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, dead four days, buried, gone, decomposing. It's amazing to me that when I think about this, that Jesus with the Mary and Martha and with the townspeople, they go to the outside of that grave. And Jesus tells somebody standing around, roll that stone away. Somebody had to cooperate with him to get the stone from in front of the tomb. Jesus then calls Lazarus to rise And Lazarus raises from the dead, walks out of the tomb, and Jesus said, Now, somebody take those clothes off of him because they're grave clothes. Let him go. Somebody else stood up and in cooperation with the Savior brought forth a part of that miracle, took the clothes off of Lazarus so he could be free after his being raised from the dead. So I want you to see that common everyday people tied into the miracles. They worked in cooperation with Jesus so the miracle could come forth. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus can bring the miracle of salvation to an entire world, but it takes the cooperation of witnesses and representatives that we go as common everyday people into the world to take the gospel there to introduce people to the Savior, and then he can bring the miracle. But we as the church work in cooperation with him so that he can bring the miracle of salvation and grace and blessing to a world that needs him, to a world that's dying, to a world that's walking away from him, to a world that's getting in trouble more and more every day because their path is leading away from the holiness of God. And the Lord Jesus is requiring cooperation from his church and from his people that we take the gospel into the world as his representatives and that we as witnesses bring them in so that Jesus can give them life. 
We work in cooperation with the Savior just as much as the servants at this miracle, just as much as those people outside of Lazarus' tomb. We work in cooperation with him. The church, common, everyday people working in cooperation with the miracles of the Savior. That's amazing to me. Well, fourthly, finally, the governor of the wedding said, who saved the best for last? Who saved the best wine that should have been served first and it saved to last? Jesus did that, and he still does. He still saves the best for last. Believer, you and I need to be faithful to him every day. You and I need to work in cooperation with the gospel of the living Lord Jesus Christ as we go out in this world. We stand in courage for him. And if there's ever been an age and if there's ever been a country where the church needs to stand up in courage on the word of God and not back down and not compromise, it is now. We need to stand up. We need to be the church. We need to proclaim the gospel. We cannot compromise against him. We need to stand up to defend him. We need to be willing to endure and be faithful to the end of our life. We need to fight the good fight. We need to finish our course. We need to complete our race in faithfulness to him. And when we finish our course, do you know what Jesus will say? Write the reference down. Matthew 25, 21. Matthew 25, 21. Well done. Thou good and faithful servant, thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thou, thy Lord. He saves the best for last. He saves living with him for eternity to last. For every true faithful believer born again in Jesus Christ, he saves the best for last for us. And that's the eternal home that's waiting for us. I go to prepare your place. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am there, you may be also. He saves the best for last. That we will live with him that every day for eternity we can lift up our eyes and we can be with him and see him and talk to him and be at his feet, (laughs) the best for last. I thank the Lord for everyday miracles. So little thought about, but there's a constant flow of miracles in your life and in my life. I pray as we walk out of this sanctuary today, our minds will be a little more attuned to be thankful for the miracles that flow upon us every single day from the moment that we open our eyes and see the world in the mornings till we close our eyes at night realizing that he will watch over us throughout the night of sleep. And all the miracles that come in between waking up and going to bed. It's amazing when you begin counting your blessings. It's amazing when you realize how many miracles flow into our life every day. But let me ask you this, brother, sister. When you read this passage, and it says that the servants knew that a miracle had taken place here. Friends, you and I know, if you're a born-again believer, you know that Jesus can change a life. You know that Jesus can forgive sin. 
And you know it doesn't matter what color a person is or what nation they come from or how poor or rich they are or how sinful they have been in their past. Jesus can reach a life. Jesus can change a life in salvation. How, believer, can we not work in cooperation with him? How could we sit on a pew and say, let somebody else do my job? How could we do that? So my prayer today is that you and I will rededicate and recommit our lives to working in cooperation with the Savior who works the miracles, and he gives us the chance and the opportunity to work by his side and see it happen. Let's bring them in, and let's see Jesus do the miracle of salvation in so many lives. How can we not say, Lord, I will work in cooperation with you? Maybe today you want to rededicate your life, brother, sister, to being that servant who will do whatever he tells you to do because we will see the miracles that come. And today, if you are here and you've never received him as your Savior, I want you to know you can come to him this very moment. Again, you don't have to look backward and say, I'm too bad. And please don't look back into your life and say, I'm just good enough that I don't need him. All of us sin and all of us fall short of the glory of God and every single person on earth needs Jesus as Lord and Savior. No one was born good the first time. Every person needs a second birth. Every person needs to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And the greatest miracle of all that you will see in this word, the greatest miracle of the universe is when a heart is changed from lost to found, from hell to heaven, from guilt-ridden to free, to following our own selfish desires to following the will of God to wandering through life with no purpose, to having a purpose of serving him and working in cooperation with him. If you've never received him, he's waiting for you today. If you're somewhere streaming, listening to this, or hear it on podcast down the road, wherever you are, wherever time the frame is here, if you don't know him, this is the moment that he's calling you, saying, come to me, and I will give you, I will give you forgiveness and freedom and I'm saving the best for last. I will take you home one day when the time is right. If you need him, you come. Church home, whatever you need, the Lord meets us here. Let's pray together. Now, Father, our God, in these moments, this sermon, Lord, in the work that I've done on it, seems to me, Lord, to be so overwhelming. There's so much truth in it, Father. Help us to not miss the truth. But I pray, Father, that the one truth that strikes me so much in these days is that you have called us to work by your side. We're not miracle workers. We can't, we can't bring forth anything that's even close to a miracle. But we can cooperate with the one who can. And you ask us, Lord, to take the gospel to the world. I pray, Father, that you'll bless Kirby and Stella and their four sons as they move to Hawaii that they'll take the gospel to that section of the world. I pray, Father, wherever we are today, that wherever the week would take us, that we'll take the gospel there. I pray that we will work in cooperation with you, Lord, that the good news will spread in our community and around the world because we want to see people saved. Help us not sit back saying somebody else will do the work, somebody else will do the job, somebody else will take my place. That's not what the Bible says at all. There's no such thing as a, a pew potato Christian. Help each one of us, Lord, to recommit our lives to working in cooperation with the Savior 
to see your miracles of healing and blessing come. Help us to be thankful for the miracles that flow into our lives every single day. Lord, I pray that you bless that one who needs Jesus as Lord and Savior. Be it right now in this sanctuary, at home, streaming it on a computer, or maybe down the road on a podcast, wherever that person is, right now is the moment that he or she can say yes to Jesus as Lord and Savior. The greatest miracle of all is letting Jesus change that heart from lost to found. Bless us in this precious moment, I pray. In Jesus' precious name we ask it. Amen. Clifford Baptist Church invites you to join us for worship every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. For more information about our church, please call our church office at 434-946-0555.